Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me. Tonight's story is by the Italian writer Grazia Deledda. She was born in the little village of Nuoro, Sardinia, in 1871. She had little formal education, but from very early on she was an avid reader. She also had great talents and ambition as a writer, and she was a close observer of human behavior and relationships. In her early stories she writes about the world in which she grew up, but it was when she moved to Rome that she began to develop as a writer, just as Ernest Hemingway said that he wrote best of his early years in Michigan once he moved to Paris. Deletta's skill and devotion to writing led to her winning the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1926. Tonight's story is called The Open Door, and it goes out with thanks to Elena. Warm thanks also to Grazia Deledda's gifted translator, Kevin Hauser, for permission to share this text with you. The Open Door by Grazia Deledda On Spy Wednesday, Simone Barca went to confession. He was desperate, and a desperate man eagerly turns to God the way a sick man turns to a doctor. And so Simone went to the Basilica, a national monument that still adorns the impoverished town, and where at that hour of the morning only a few friars from the adjacent convent celebrated Mass in the chapels where moisture had covered the ancient frescoes with a layer of green. The Barbagian women, in their hoods and coarse, tight-as-a-belt skirts laced with silver chains, were chanting the rosary in their Latin dialect, their voices fading into the basilica's vastness like in the ruins of a temple, and from the valley a wild scent of spurge and green alder seeped in through the wide-open doors. Simone went to confess to the brother prior, whose enormous body filled the small confessional where he wheezed and snored like a bear in a cage. "'Father, I'm a lost man. It makes me want to kill some poor soul. I'm so desperate.' I've committed the worst sins. Until a short time ago, Father, I was my parents' son, an only child. At twenty years of age I was still sleeping with my mother, but once she died the wrong crowd besieged me, like flies on a speck of raisin. And my uncle, who's also a priest, threw me out of the house instead of helping me, and turns his head whenever he sees me. Yes, I've committed all the worst sins." gambling, drinking, frequenting disreputable women, consulting fortune-tellers, bearing false witness, wishing evil on my neighbors, coveting others' things, committing forgery. Yes, Father, I've forged a signature, and in a few days the promissory note falls due, and I'll have to go to prison, and I'll be dishonored. All the blame lies with the bad influence of those companions who have now abandoned me, and every door has been shut to me, and there's no longer any open door left for me. But I've repented, Father, and I'll go to prison and atone for my sins, but you must give me God's absolution so I can receive Easter communion and suffer in innocence like our Lord Jesus Christ. The brother prior wheezed, but didn't reply. Wheezing himself, Simone buried his face, gaunt and black like a Bedouin's, in his hands, and thought, "'Maybe he's scandalized. Maybe he's glad to hear that my uncle Barca, a priest, is the root cause of my ruin. Friars and priests can't stand each other. Maybe, out of spite for my uncle, 
he'll give me the money to pay the promissory note. But the brother prior was quietly snoring, his warm breath reaching Simona's face. Tired of waiting, the penitent shook off his dream of atonement and his evil thoughts. He focused his big, dark, childlike eyes, and a bitter smile hollowed out the dimples of his clean-shaven cheeks. The priest was sleeping. Oh, even the Lord is deaf to the desperate sinner's cries. Slowly, slowly, Simona left, heart filled with sadness, brain unsettled by ugly thoughts. Around the main altar, services were beginning, and Father Barca's joyous voice could already be heard warbling psalms. People were coming and going. Now men were arriving too, tall, with long square beards like in Moses' day, dressed in leather jackets and short twill trousers, wide-legged like little skirts. Some were so solemn, calm, and simple they looked like prophets. Others were short, gaunt like Simone, parched by the wind and evil thoughts. Even the women resembled those from the Bible, and one woman that Simona met in the courtyard of the basilica, a tall, skinny widow with an olive complexion and large greenish eyes, wrapped in hieratical garments like a tight corset, lacked only a handful of barley ears to look like Boaz's second mother-in-law. Simona flinched when he saw her. He flinched from hatred, since the woman was a sort of governess for Father Barca, but also from the sudden thought that at that particular moment no one was there at his uncle's house. And just as if it had suddenly turned to night, he began seeing things and people in a vague, imprecise way, and walked carefully next to walls, tripping on the stones that littered the dirt pathways. He arrived in front of his house that looked like the ruins of a tower, and only then did everything seem to light up around him again. He went inside, and a moment later his face reappeared in the little window of the only upstairs floor, pensive, like the face of a general pondering a battle plan from a lofty fortress. Simona's battlefield was the short landscape that stretched out in plain sight below, consisting of the path crossed by a stream where reeds and grass sprouted up like in the open countryside, the widow's hovel that faced his own, and his uncle the priest's big black house and courtyard next to the widow's, enclosed by a small adjoining church whose vegetable garden, overrun by weeds and shaded by cypresses, looked like part of a cemetery. Simona reflected that he'd spent his childhood and adolescence jumping over the dry stone wall between his uncle's courtyard and the church garden, and wondered if it wasn't time to attempt that endeavor once again, but in the opposite direction, that is, from the churchyard to his uncle's courtyard. Once there, he could easily penetrate into the fortress, that is, his uncle's house. No one knew its nooks and crannies and labyrinthine hallways better than he did. Closing his eyes, he could picture the ledge on the wall of the landing where Father Barca would put the big key to his room before going out. Opening them again, he recalled, not without a wave of emotion, that broad and slightly mysterious room illuminated by a small lamp filled with sacred images and bound books, 
where more than once as a little boy he had surprised his uncle counting gold coins like a wizard in his nightshirt and nightcap, or cleverly poking pinholes in the banknotes to spell out his name. One day, crawling along the floor, dragging his hands and knees to best imitate a wild boar, Simona had dislodged a brick, and under the brick he'd found a box full of coins. Now he recalled those days in the way a prisoner remembers his days of freedom. He spent three days almost entirely at the window, stepping away only to eat a bit of barley bread and some goat cheese. Yes, while his uncle planted his money under bricks, Simona lived like a wretched shepherd. His house was empty, desolate, without furniture. He'd sold it all. Without doors, even. He'd sold those as well. And spiders spun their webs above the trunk lined with furry wild boar leather in which he stored his poor mother's wedding dress along with her widow's dress. To console himself, he would drink a little glass of brandy and return to the window. From up there he could smell the sweets the women were preparing for Easter and see the smoke rising from the plank and shingle roofs. Some nightingales were already singing in the valley, and delicate April clouds, white like a maiden's sash that the wind had swept away from some hedge, passed over the church garden. On Holy Thursday the widow left his uncle's house and opened the little church, which was usually closed. With the help of other neighborhood women, she pulled the Christ down, setting him on the floor, surrounded by four candles and four saucers with shoots of wheat, thus forming the sepulchre. But the people all went into the basilica where they were celebrating the paschal mystery, and two real thieves, or at least ones who had been convicted of theft, were tied to a cross on either side of Christ. From his little window Simona could also see his uncle, short, fat, bouncing, and the widow, tall, skinny, rigid, walking one after the other towards the basilica. He went downstairs, but when he got out into the street he leaned his shoulder against the wall and stood there a long time, still and pensive, listening to the distant chanting of the procession. It was twilight. The new moon was slipping down a greenish sky onto the purple mountains, and the evening star was rising, and it seemed the two were meeting like Mary and Christ in the streets of the village. In a few minutes the procession will be here, thought Simona, beginning to walk but sticking close to the wall. He was scared of passing through the church to get into the little garden, passing by the dead Christ laid out on the floor, surrounded by the four candles and the four shoots of wheat. All of a sudden he arrived at his uncle's doorway with a start, the door was open. Someone was in the house then, and it was useless to go any further. He turned around and leaned against the wall again. But who could be there in his uncle's house? The servants, farmers, and shepherds didn't return until Saturday evening. The priest and the widow were behind the procession. He walked up to the door again, knocked, and called out, Basila! Basila! His voice echoed in the already dark house like inside a cave. He entered, closed the door, 
bolted up the stairs and through the narrow hallways, found the ledge on the wall, found the key, opened the door, and was in his uncle's room. It felt like a dream. The window was closed. A candle, like one of the dead Christ's four, was burning in front of a picture of the holy martyrs. There were so many of them, men, women, elderly, children, but all were looking up, their faces sweet and gentle, and Simone wasn't scared of them. In the lamp's greenish glow, he bent over and began touching the bricks one by one, like a bricklayer hired to restore the floor. But none of the bricks would budge, and he stood up and wiped his hand across his brow, damp with an icy sweat. He heard the chanting of the procession and began trembling all over. He leaned against his uncle's bed, and it moved, squeaking and shaking as if overcome by the same terror and the same excitement as the thief. Then Simona looked at the brick the foot of the bed was resting on, and it looked like the brick was moving. He bent over and picked it up with his fingernails, and in the space below, buried in the dirt, he found a tin box with two thousand lira notes inside. On Easter Sunday, Father Barca threw the widow Basila out of his house, and a moment later it was as if the entire town was swept by a breeze of scandal. Everyone heard that many thousands of lira belonging to the priest had gone missing. Some said it was two thousand, others three, some twenty, and that on the evening of Good Friday Basila had forgotten to lock the door. The police sergeant came to the priest's house, but the priest tried to appear nonchalant, clapping his hands and saying, Pittance! A mere pittance! On Tuesday the widow's shack was searched, and she was arrested, but then released the following day. There was nothing to implicate her, but the town's residents, or families rather, split into two camps because the men defended Basila, saying that she really may have forgotten to lock the door, thus providing some thief an opportunity to enter, while the women snickered, so a few minutes was enough for the thief to ply his trade. Then people stopped whispering, but the widow was looked upon with contempt by all. No one would give her work any more, and she no longer went to church, and she lived in poverty in her hovel, and Simona would often see her standing at her doorway, face pale and sad, but with her large greenish eyes directed upward, like those of the holy martyrs. Simona paid off the forged promissory note and repurchased doors and an overcoat. No one was surprised because he, like every gambler, often had these wild swings of fortune, and no one except his creditor knew about the promissory note. What did surprise people was seeing him suddenly change his life. He no longer frequented panderers or the bad crowd. He went to church and greeted his uncle, but his uncle continued to look away when he saw him, and one day when Simone approached him, determined to stop him to kiss his hand, not only did his uncle refuse the greeting, but he turned his back on him and walked away. Simona was left stunned. He leaned against the wall and couldn't move, overcome by a distressing thought. He knows.
Then he went to see the widow Basila and said to her, Do you think you could bake my bread and wash and mend my clothes? Set your own payment. The widow was standing in front of the cold, lifeless hearth, combing her hair. It was thick and very long, a golden chestnut color, and lent a martyr's halo to her olive complexion. Seeing Simona, she hugged it against her cheeks and chest like a veil, raising and lowering her head with a menacing gesture, while her greenish eyes glistened beneath her thick, black, knitted brows. "'You already have someone to bake your bread and wash your clothes. Get out of here!' He took off like a whipped dog and went back to leaning against the wall. "'She knows!' He spent his days like that, leaning against the wall, often using a pocket-knife to carve his walnut-wood walking-stick, or some cork or some twig, but more often doing nothing. Not even in his darkest days had he been so listless. He kept seeing the widow's menacing eyes in front of him, and felt an almost physical malaise when he thought that Basila had fallen into poverty and disrepute because of him. Some nights he had frightening dreams. The trunk with his mother's dresses seemed like a live boar, and would keep staring at the doors repurchased with that money. Summer passed, and in the autumn he found a new spot along the wall, following the sun. From there he could better see Basila, sitting in the sun as well, spinning or sewing, barefooted and wretched as a slave. The winter was long and harsh. Poor people went hungry, and Father Barca and a matron who lived in the neighborhood sent bread and beans to all the poor, except for the widow. For Christmas, a woman with whom Simona had amused himself more than once sent him the gift of a leg of mouflon. He already had a roast pig and a lamb, and thinking that Basila had nothing other than potatoes, he tried sending her the mouflon meat and was surprised to see that she didn't reject the offer. Then, for the entire rest of the winter, caught up in a genuine obsession with atonement, he continued sending her gifts, even frequently depriving himself of something he needed. Spring returned. Women sprouted wheat in saucers again inside armoires to use to adorn the sepulchres. On the evening of Good Friday, Simona went to the procession, and on the way back stood for a good while at his usual spot next to the wall, in the mild, whisper-filled night. From the gap in Basila's door a yellowish glimmer emerged, and with strange eyes Simona stared at that light, which looked mysterious to him. All of a sudden he went and knocked and asked the woman if she wanted to marry him. People whispered, and then stopped whispering. Basila, after all, was only ten years older than Simona, and was a good housewife. In fact, in short order the young man's house looked entirely different, clean, with the oven frequently in use, and the courtyard enlivened by chickens. Simona was seen to be on the right path again, like when his mother was alive, and everyone said that he'd married Basila to spite his uncle. He wasn't in love with his wife, but he followed her advice and was glad to have lifted a weight off his conscience and to have married a sensible woman. 
she went to church again and spoke her mind, and he felt like he'd returned to the happy times when his mother was alive, and he, a still innocent twenty-year-old, would get into bed with her and repeat the prayers she recommended. One day, many months after his marriage, the woman who had sent him the leg of Mouflon called out to him as he passed by her door and asked to borrow a hundred scudos. He began to laugh. If I had a hundred scudos, I'd embark on a trip around the world. I'll pay interest, Simona Barca. I'm solvent, and I'll give you twenty percent just like everyone else does. You've lost your mind, Malena Porcu. You think I'm crazy? Tell me you don't have confidence in me, Simona Barca, but don't insult me. You and your wife have loaned money at twenty percent interest to various people. Why shouldn't you loan some to me, too? Or is it true what your uncle, Father Barca, says, that it's your wife who secretly loans out the money without telling you? Simona blanched, but replied, My uncle is senile, and you are what you are. In the coming days he was again seen leaning against the wall, like during his woeful period. He kept asking himself, Why was the door open? And his brain kept working and working, digging deeper and deeper into gloomy depths, seeking truth the way a miner seeks gold in the dark bowels of the earth. She must have taken a good portion of the money and left the door open to make people think that some thief had gotten in. Oh, that old snake in the grass, he thought angrily, and before putting too much faith in his conclusion, he wanted to make sure with his own eyes. It was Good Friday evening again, and Basila had gone to church. Simona had waited until then so he could search the whole house at his leisure. But no matter how much he searched, in drawers, cupboards, mattresses, he didn't find anything. Tired of searching, he took a look around, and in the shadows, the trunk that still contained his mother's dresses began to seem like a live boar again. He tried to open it, but couldn't. Then he remembered that Basila always took the keys with her. He went downstairs to the kitchen and returned with a hatchet and began striking the trunk as if it really were a ferocious boar. The lid split open. Simona dropped to his knees and began rummaging inside. He found Basila's morning attire, and right out of her black hood fell two, three, many banknotes, reddish, greenish, yellowish, fluttering silently like shriveled leaves from a walnut tree. Among others there was a thousand lira note. He picked it up and looked at it in the candlelight, and read Father Barca's name spelled out with little pinholes. Then he began to curse and punch himself in the head. But why did this happen to me? Why me, of all people? he said out loud. Suddenly a sing-song, melancholy and sweet like the murmur of the woods, arrived from the little dirt path. Simona fell silent and stood to listen, with his head bowed and his eyes wide, and as the procession approached, he began trembling and sweating, like he had when he was leaning on his uncle's bed. You've been listening to The Open Door by Grazia Deledda. 
Her stories and novels have been given fresh life by the translations of Kevin Hauser and are readily available on Kindle and Amazon. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. Thank you.